0: Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week?
1: As per usual, Gary, I am positively fantastic. It is a, well, it was a beautifully sunny day today. Mm. Absolutely hammered through my work today. I got some great results from my clients this week, some fucking phenomenal wins. That always puts me in a good mood where I'm like, okay, my entire team is just winning winning. Um, And then also we're talking about a nice topic tonight, you know, that I I enjoy researching, I enjoy reading about, I enjoy thinking about. Um, So yeah, life is good. What about you, Gary? How is it down in the mighty Kerry? Because you're on placement now, aren't you?
0: Yes, I'm on placement in University Hospital Kerry, or as we typically know it in Kerry, Trilly General Hospital. Um, So that's about 30 minutes from where I live in Killarney. So I am staying at home being spoiled rotten. my mother with her cooking and it also happens to be my birthday this week so um that's a nice uh, coincidence uh, that I'll be at home for my birthday so um I'm good I cannot complain really enjoying placement had an anesthetics placement this week which meant that I was in the surgical theater and despite the fact that I wasn't on a surgery placement I got to see lots of surgery and I like surgery so that was fun and then the week ahead I've got general medicine placement uh which is largely going to be care of the elderly. So elderly people who are in hospital sick. So again, looking forward to it. But for today...
1: Before we get on to that, what is ahead. the situation? How did you find it with the whole you know, panini that we're in? Sorry, I mean uh, panorama that we're in. Sorry, pandemic that we're in. A uh, pandemic.
0: Okay, I heard about that. Um, actually, not too bad. Like, There's a, definitely a few... Extra, there a few extra bits of red tape, you know, like you have to sign into an app every morning, and obviously, you have to be very careful about washing your hands and stuff. But healthcare professionals should probably care about that anyway, all of the time. Um, and PPE personal protective equipment is a, a little bit more uh, important as well. So, there are a number of extra things, and obviously, the flow of patients through the hospital, uh, including surgical theaters is uh, a lot slower, so you're not going to have as many elective procedures, for example, but far more um, emergency and, and more urgent matters to be seen, too. So overall, yeah, probably less intensive placement than you'd normally get, and also in duration, it's only two weeks instead of four weeks, which it should have been, but yeah, COVID isn't making, it's not making life easier for many people, and that includes medical students, so.
1: 100%. First for today, what, gonna
0: say, yeah. what we're going to discuss um, is the topic of diabetes uh, and its relationship to obesity. Uh, this is something that you will likely have, have heard discussed before, uh, the relationship between diabetes and obesity, or at least you may have an image in your head when you think of type 2 diabetes, you probably think of that as being somewhat related to um, either obesity or the diet that someone eats. Okay. Even when you're a kid, sometimes you get told, you know, stop eating all those sweets or you'll get diabetes, you know? Um, And this does, as we start this conversation, it's important to be clear that although the name diabetes is given to both types of diabetes or both primary types of diabetes, that's type one and type two, fundamentally, they couldn't really be more different as diseases. Like they have, they don't have that much in common really other than the fact that there's an end result um, of uh, high blood sugar, okay? That's, uh, or can, can be high blood sugar depending on how the disease is managed. But type 1 diabetes is basically an autoimmune condition where you get destruction of, of the beta cells of the pancreas, which are the cells responsible for secreting insulin. So you basically have no insulin being secreted, um, which is sort of the opposite to the disease progression in type 2 diabetes. In type 2 diabetes, basically what we end up getting is actually uh, an, an excess of insulin production initially, but the body isn't responding to it um, whereas in uh, type one diabetes, the body might be responding fine to it. It's just that it doesn't have any insulin. So there's actually a number of really different things about both both uh, diseases. Type one diabetes, if someone has that, they're probably going to be using, um, I, I would hope, uh, exogenous insulin. So they'll be uh, injecting insulin uh, under the skin. And that type of diabetes is not really the result of diet. Okay. So that's not something someone has, has developed over time as a result of um, excess calories, for example. However, type two diabetes is a disease that is more so related to lifestyle. There's absolutely a significant genetic component. Um, even in terms of ethnicity, people vary by in their sensitivity. Um, we discussed in a previous podcast that um, some Asian populations tend to be more sensitive to developing central obesity, so more fat around the abdomen. And as a result, even at lower BMIs, uh, they might be at higher risk of developing things like type 2 diabetes. And hopefully the, that, the reason for that should become clear um, as, we, as we move through this conversation. But as a kind of summary introduction to what type 2 diabetes is, it's effectively where we end up with the development of Insulin resistance uh, initially, meaning the body isn't really responding to insulin in the way that it normally would. We've got an increase in the amount of insulin that's secreted initially, but as you move towards the type 2 diabetic stage, effectively what ends up happening is the pancreas uh, stops to stop secreting as much insulin. It's not able to do that as much anymore. It's not able to compensate. And as a result, we see this increase in glucose or sugar within the blood because effectively we're not getting the response we need. And now we're no longer getting the same secretion of insulin. So that tends to result then in that increase in in blood glucose. So that's a a very simple summary of what type 2 diabetes is.
1: Yeah. And this, this is something that actually... Like so many people just say like, oh yeah, diabetes and obesity, like they're go hand in hand and you never actually really understand why that is the case. Like you say right there, like you, now we understand what type two diabetes is and you can kind of go, okay, so how is that really related to obesity? Like how does obesity like quote unquote cause diabetes? Like what's that connection? So I'm just going to run through some like quick quasi mechanism stuff here because like while well, the actual biochemistry is really interesting and that's the kind of stuff that like I really like, like it, first of all, it doesn't really translate well across like just speaking on a podcast. <laughs> but second of all, I don't actually think you need to dig overly deep into it to realize the connection and to actually understand what is going on so that you can actually impact change in other people's lives or your own life, you know, because I'm presuming most people are listening to this, not so they can get like a university level education on diabetes or obesity, like there's people far smarter than both of us that talk about this and it's like their actual field of research and would we'll be able to dive into the intricacies far better than us. However, what we're dealing with prim- primarily is, you know, the kind of end point in terms of not necessarily we're not treating people with type 2 diabetes, so not that end point. But generally, if you're a personal trainer, like you're going to come across people that are overweight or obese and are potentially on their way to developing type 2 diabetes. So you have to know what's going on so you can make better choices in terms of how you can actually intervene, right? And again, this should be ideally medically supervised like you're actually consulting with a doctor it's not just like oh yeah i think you have type 2 diabetes because you're a little bit overweight like your bmi was 26 so you know like that's that's not what we're talking about and we'll come back to that kind of stuff in a second but also a lot of our listeners are listening to this from a perspective of like oh i personally have dealt with something like this like i'm overweight or obese or a family member or a friend or whatever you know is in a similar position, so they just want to know what's going on a little bit more right so do you understand this like it actually all comes back and this is very very simplified it all comes back to insulin resistance right and i'm going to put that as like a placeholder right because we've discussed this kind of before, and we've discussed what insulin resistance is, especially in that body fat episode, like what body fat is and like a few other episodes as well. Um, but let's just put that there for a second in terms of a placeholder, right? Because that actually doesn't adequately explain what's going on. Because I can say insulin resistance, but why is obesity associated with insulin resistance? You know, like that's that's not really an explanation. You know, it's like when you're, you, you're defining a word and then you use the word to define the definition. It's like, it, like this doesn't make sense, you know? So, there's a few things, and I'm going to break this down into four relatively broad categories. And again, like if you're listening to this and you're a diabetes researcher, like I'm sorry <laughs> for making it so simplified. However, again, this is how I kind of conceptualize it, and I think this makes easier to understand overall right so the first thing is like pro-inflammatory cytokines and these are stuff like tumor necrosis factor a alpha uh, interleukin 6 resistance retinal binding protein 4 like different things like that again you don't need to know them but if you are researching them you'd be like yeah i understand that and we did cover a few of them in a previous episode in terms of i think it was the body fat one like because some of these are secreted by the actual body fat itself like the the adipose you know, tissue itself, right? Um, and they cause insulin resistance and a reduction in adiponectin. And then the reduction in adiponectin, let's forget about that for a second because it's not as relevant. But these inflammatory cytokines and other, you know, we'll call them pro inflammatory molecules, cause insulin resistance, right? And again, you can dig into the biochemistry of that really fascinating stuff. However, for this podcast, we don't need to, right? The other thing that happens, and again, this there's a lot of interplay between all of these things. It's not like these are just clearly delineated like, oh, this is how this happens. And obviously there's, as Gary said, huge genetic component to this. There's a huge environmental component to this. There's so many other factors that go into this, right? And again, you might have one or two of these things, or you might have all four of these things, or you know, there's. it's not like there's just one clear pathway. Well, it there kind of is in terms of it goes through insulin resistance, but how you got to that insulin resistance state can be different. Right. But the second point is then drain we'll call it deranged fatty acid, uh, metabolism. Right. And what I mean by this is like the places you store those fatty acids, it changes. It's not like, like someone who is, we'll say lean and, uh, you know, a, a normal or a quote unquote healthy BMI, the way they store the fatty acids or the way they metabolize the fatty acids is potentially different than the way someone who is overweight or obese stores and metabolizes these fatty acids. And again, we've used different analogies for this um, in the past. And it it makes sense if you kind of think of it as like, you only have a certain amount of storage space. And at at a certain stage, once you've stocked up on these storage sites in other areas, so you're overweight or obese, like you've got fatty acid stores in in your body, right? Um, Fatty acid stores is not correct, but you've got fat stored in in the rest of your body in other places. And, you know, these storage sites are full. So we have to kind of look for other areas to store fat, right? Again, very simplified way of thinking of it, but it helps the the analogy, right? But what happens in this, um, when you are overweight or obese, and again, this is going to be at a different time point potentially for everyone along that spectrum. And this is why you have stuff like metabolically healthy obesity and, you know, like it, it, it's, it's a spectrum. And, um, and one of these, one of these sites that it gets stored in or these fatty acids or this fat gets stored in is we'll call it ectopic fat deposition. And this is the fat in organs and muscles. And this is really relevant to this discussion of insulin resistance. And even though it is somewhat secondary to previous insulin resistance, because you know the fat cells are already full. However, this is a kind of like a a vicious circle you get into or a vicious cycle where, these other fat stores are full and they're they're full and they're insulin resistant already but then you start storing it in areas that make it so that you're more insulin resistant and this ectopic fat storage is probably the most insulin resistance insulin resistant causing fat tissue right and and then secondary to that as well you get visceral fat deposition so you get you know inside and around your organs so it's not just like in your organs like the actual organs themselves like the cells of your like your we'll say your liver cell for example like you get fat stored in that or you know in between the spaces of those cells let's just say that um, but you also then get it packed around those organs themselves you know so like your body is basically saying like i don't have enough storage sites let me just pack it in these other areas and unfortunately these other areas are more insulin resistance causing areas because again the type of fat that gets uh, deposited there potentially you know secretes more of these pro-inflammatory cytokines. There's a whole host of other things that it does, and that is somewhat relevant for stuff we'll talk about later in the podcast. Um, but just know that like you're getting fatty acid or you're getting fat stored in different organs, muscles, you know around your organs. It's not beneficial from a, an insulin resistance standpoint, right? The third point of this then is also like like certain cellular processes, such as like mitochondrial dysfunction and uh, endoplasmic reticulum stress occur in situations of overweight and obesity, right? And again, like this is, It's interesting biochemistry, no doubt, Um, and there's definitely going to be like, you know, breakthroughs and different things in these areas Um, in the future in terms of especially if they could be like, you know, pharmacologically targeted, like you'll see like huge breakthroughs and some of the drugs do work through some of this stuff Um, and also some of the interventions we have do work through some of this stuff as well in terms of like you're thinking mitochondria and there's some sort of like mitochondrial dysfunction and then you're like "Hmm, i wonder if exercise might be a good intervention for this population when you know like i'll just say the, the the mitochondrial dysfunction you get is like these decreased mitochondrial mass and or function and like we know we can influence that by something like you know cardiovascular work you know cardiovascular exercise so it is relevant to understand the we we'll say the, the pathogenesis of the insulin resistance, because that, those influence how we then, you know, help someone that's in this position, right? But again, you don't need to dive too deep into it. You just need to know that the powerhouse of the cell is dysfunctioning, right? So your mitochondria, something's going wrong there, and they're not actually doing their job effectively. And again, thinking of it through logically, it's like, what is their job? And in this case, it's like, okay, it's to burn through energy. Let's just keep it like really simple like that right so if you're in a situation where you are giving a signal to store more energy because you know you're not burning it like those processes are going to go down now that's not the whole story and again extremely simplified and i wouldn't like someone to come away from this and think like oh that's the entire reason however again my simple monkey brain that's how i think of it right the next thing then is like obesity causes stress on the endoplasmic reticulum within the cell. Again, you don't need to know, you know, complex cell biology, but you've probably seen an endoplasmic reticulum before in terms of it goes around the nucleus, et cetera, makes proteins, d- does real interesting stuff. And there's a lot of like, if you, if you do biochemistry, like you'll be like, okay, yeah, like there's a lot that goes on there. And if you do like any kind of biology, you'll be like, okay, there's a lot that goes on there. However, all we need to know right now is like this endoplasmic reticulum stress then causes uh, we we'll call it uh, a suppression in the, the signals of the insulin receptors, right? Because they also package things out, such as insulin itself. So, like they they, they create like anyway. That's beside the point. Um, you, basically, you're getting the insulin receptors and the actual secretion of insulin is less effective with this stress going on right so it's not an ideal situation and again that can lead to insulin resistance and also you know some other downstream stuff that goes on but again not as relevant well it is relevant but we don't need to understand that today and <laughs> um, also you can get obesity obesity associated cellular injury right which again sounds like it's you know horrific or something <laughs> um, but again this can then in, in turn recruit and activate like macrophages um, and other immune cells that then exacerbate tissue inflammation itself. And you've, if you go back and you listen to our uh, podcasts on like heart disease, like you can see how this could happen, especially with like plaque formation in you know the arterial space and stuff. Like you can see like, oh, this immune cell activation and the, your immune cell effectively attacking itself. And um, you know, that can lead to more inflammation, which again, if we're talking about the first point we made, like inflammation is potentially bad for insulin resistance or we should say it's bad for insulin sensitivity. Right. So again, there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on. It's not just like, Oh, excess calories give you diabetes. You know, it's like, okay, there's a lot of underlying biochemistry. Now there's a potential fourth one as well. And again, depending on who you are and what you've previously studied in the research realm um, you may have an opinion on this. You now, I think neuroscience is completely fake. So that's my perspective. Gary would definitely have a different opinion and someone who's not as uh, funny as me uh, <laughs> would probably also have a different opinion. However, I'm just gonna quote something here because ultimately I don't, first of all, I don't know enough about it that I could be like, oh, this is you know the ins and outs of the situation. Um, but also I'm like, I don't know if, like how relevant this actually is, right? So I'm just gonna quote this is just from a paper. Um, Brain neurocircuits govern energy, if I could speak, brain neurocircuits governing energy homeostasis also affect insulin sensitivity in the liver and perhaps other peripheral tissues and inflammation similar to that induced by obesity in peripheral insulin sensitive tissues also occurs in these areas of the brain. If obesity is associated with impairment of circuits regulating both energy balance and insulin ac- action, obesity-induced insulin resistance may arise not only as a direct consequence of excessive adipose mass, but via neuronal mechanisms as well. Right. So this is basically saying that there could be well, let's call it a bidirectional pathway here. Like you get, you become obese, it you know changes your brain effectively again it's more complex than that but it changes your brain effectively and then those changes in your brain signal you to be less insulin resistant insulin sensitive or you know it it, it changes energy homeostasis across the body across the other tissues because again as we've talked about in previous podcasts, especially in the last one, when we, we dived a little bit more, was that the last one or the previous one? You know, we were talking about free will and stuff. Like there's a lot more to this. Like you could be a, an obese individual and then have your free will impacted because of that. So it is a very complex overall. And again, this could be bi-directional. Like that, <laughs> be, that could be the precipitating event in terms of like, you could have some sort of, you know, I don't know, changes in your neurocircuitry, neuronal tissues you know whatever it is some injury whatever and then that can cause obesity downstream of that you know and again look i don't know enough about this stuff like i like you know research in terms of neuroscience on depression and stuff like i know a lot about that however overall like this is just a huge area and i'm not an expert on it but those are the kind of four we'll say mechanisms of why obesity you know leads to diabetes however that's not really answering the full question, and not fully rounding it, rounding it out. Because what we have to understand is like, okay, you've got insulin resistance, right? That's still not telling you, like, why did you get too high of diabetes from having insulin resistance, right? Like all those four things, they led to increases in insulin resistance. But what happens is, if you have more insulin resistance, you get a situation that leads to like hyperinsulinemia, right? Because I always think of insulin resistance um, as like, Knocking on the door, like that insulin molecule knocks on the door if you 're insulin resistant you're you know, 're not listening to that knock on the door, so you need more insulin to come by and knock on the door to get a louder knock right um, and again, once you get to that louder knock, then the insulin action actually occurs right so if you 're insulin resistant, your body's going to go, I need to secrete more insulin. To get a louder knock on these doors right so you get hyperinsulinemia right um, however what happens then and this is this is the probably the most simplified um thing i'm probably going to say in this podcast and i've already simplified things quite a lot but like what happens then is the pancreas effectively becomes quote-unquote fatigued and produces less insulin right? Because it's knocking on the door. It's constantly producing more insulin. It's constantly going, okay, we need to get a louder knock, a louder knock. And it's sending all these insulin boys to knock on the doors. And ultimately no one's listening. And then it goes, well, here, why am I sending these people? Why am I putting in all this effort and nothing is happening? You know? And so this is a really bad situation to be in. And we'll call this kind of like in that range of like pre-diabetes to diabetes where like your body's like, okay, well, I'm just going to stop producing as much insulin because what's the fucking point. Um, I'm knocking on the door. It's not getting into the cell because it's insulin resistant. Um, and this can effectively lead to a worsening of the situation of like nutrient excess in the bloodstream, which again, you might see this in like a blood glucose reading, you might be like, oh, my blood glucose is always high, you know? Um, but also if you were to measure other things as well, like uh, glucose, free fatty acids, like nutrients in general, like you would probably notice that they're all high across the board because your cells are just insulin resistant overall. Does that make sense, Gary? Yes. And overall, there's kind of... You
0: could summarize the the mechanisms or not, you could, I mean, it has been summarized in, in the form of the twin cycle hypothesis, which is um, basically a model you could say uh, of type two diabetes development that was put for, forth by Roy Taylor and has since gone through various stages um, of, of evidence in terms of does this hypothesis hold up? And it seems to, and also in terms of then influencing interventions which we'll discuss afterward but overall you can kind of think of there being two cycles a liver cycle and a pancreas cycle and there's this relationship between the two so in obesity um, or even just in the process of gaining fat what's going to happen is you'll eventually start to accumulate fat in your liver okay and As this happens, as you get this increase in flux of fat through the liver, the fat is effectively exported into the blood in VLDL uh, particles, and these are very low-density lipoproteins. And the density of a lipoprotein is basically governed by the amount of protein versus the amount of lipid that's in the molecule. So if you have high-density lipoproteins, HDL, that's going to have more protein in it, whereas with VLDL, it's packed full of triglycerides. And as these are are exported out and exported out and exported out, what can happen is this can enter the liver and increase the amount of triglyceride that's actually stored within the islets um, of Langerhans, which are effectively the the areas of importance when it comes to insulin secretion. You, You said
1: the liver there, you meant the pancreas.
0: Yeah, sorry, the pancreas, excuse me. Um, The islets of Langerhans within the pancreas that are the important areas uh, for insulin secretion. And as this begins to, to accumulate, we get a decrease then in the insulin response to ingested glucose. So as you take in carbohydrates in the diet, you're now not getting the same insulin response that you desire. And this is where the cycle starts to come into things because then you end up with- Before we go into that just yeah.
1: also be thinking especially if you've listened to our previous podcasts on like you know cardiovascular disease and like even stuff like you can just start making connections like you know alcohol alcoholic fatty liver that's what it's called isn't it yeah alcoholic or non-alcoholic non-alcoholic fatty. like you know like if you're getting these like we'll call them fatty streaks through your liver and um, that's why you start seeing you know changes in your again what we classify as cholesterol even though like yeah. we were saying there it's like your actual lipoproteins like this is why all of this stuff is connected, and well, it's not why it's all connected. It's connected because you're a singular entity. But <laughs> um, like, once you start understanding this stuff, you can start seeing how this stuff is actually connected to other areas, and then you can also start looking at okay, why are these you know seemingly like various different um, pathologies associated with obesity? Like, you might be in a situation where like your pancreas doesn't get these you know we'll call them fatty tissue deposits, but you actually get heart disease because you've got this increase in VLDL, LDL, as a result of having like fatty acid or fatty accumulation in your liver. And again, maybe you're more predisposed to heart disease, you know? So once you start putting these things together, like, even though like we're putting this as a, a twin cycle hypothesis, like ultimately everything in your body is connected, you know, even though we're focusing on these two things, because we're, we're talking about diabetes, you could also talk about heart disease peripheral to that, you know? So like, I, I know, and I've I previously have done it in terms of I've not connected the dots. I'll read about this and go, Oh, that makes sense. But then wonder at a later date, like, why do you, like, why, why is LDL increased in obesity? Um, uh, and why does that influence like heart disease? But it's like, okay, once you start getting the, the bigger picture and hopefully, you know, when you listen to all our podcast episodes, you get that bigger picture, you start going, okay, this, this is starting to make a bit more sense. But anyway, sorry for rudely interrupting you, Gary, you were going to talk about what the pancreas does and insulin.
0: Yeah, but it was an appropriate interruption because, like, fundamentally, that's why we always use that phrase, cardiometabolic disease, because it's just a better way of viewing things because, fundamentally, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease, even, like, risk of stroke, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, all of these things are linked together kind of under that bracket of cardiometabolic disease. Um, and And then, obviously, that then can feed into to cancer as well, neoplastic disease. If you think about, um, for example, that development of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, as that progresses and progresses, you put yourself then at, at risk of hepatocellular carcinoma, which is basically the end stage um, of that, uh, that that process of, of fatty liver disease. So, yeah, overall, just remember it's all connected. And the reason we care about type 2 diabetes is because it, it puts you at risk of, of other diseases, for example, uh, like long-term huge risk of cardiovascular disease from type 2 diabetes. So um, it is all connected for sure. And as we said, um, as we get that decrease in insulin response to ingested glucose, so I now have a a glucose load, let's say I have a glucoside sport, I'm not getting the same insulin response because my pancreas effectively isn't working as well, those beta cells aren't functioning as well, then we end up with this situation where we now have a further increase in plasma glucose at baseline. So you've got this higher level of sugar in the blood. And then you've also got uh, the result from that is an increase in basal insulin secretion or the amount of secretion that's just happening all the time. So you've got this constant demand then for insulin to be released. You've got reduced response to that insulin, and then you've got, as a result, an increase in plasma glucose, which acts in this sort of cycle. And as that happens, you get further increases in liver fat, further increases in insulin resistance, and it basically continues in that sort of cycle. Again, there's further uh, factors that are important here, like. Uh, where your body fat is stored. For example, we mentioned in one podcast that uh, females tend to store more body fat in their lower body and that tends to uh, secrete more adiponectin, which is insulin sensitizing. Um, There's, of course, new neurobiological factors. Uh, There's factors related to pre-existing muscle insulin resistance, for example, how much one exercises, how much muscle one has, etc. All of these things are intrinsically linked. But fundamentally, As you progress on the spectrum of overweight to obesity, to class one to class two to class three obesity, there is that increase in risk that you do push yourself beyond that threshold for you. And this has been labeled as the personal fat threshold at which one begins to uh, move along that spectrum towards type two diabetes. It's different for everyone. And this is why it's not necessarily appropriate to just assume that it's only a disease of obesity, because some people can develop type two diabetes at supposedly normal uh, body weights. And often this is associated with an increase in in body fat that is actually distributed around the organs in the liver in the pancreas, etc. So it's not, it's not a, appropriate to assume that, uh, yeah, there's a one-to-one relationship there between obesity and diabetes, but a very large proportion of type two diabetes within the population is attributable to, um, if not obesity, um, just the general increase in body fatness. So on that spectrum of overweight to obesity. So it's not just, although we're talking about obesity, its body fat gain in general, and as a result, positive calorie balance or excess calorie consumption consumption
1: in the long term. So, and just on top of that as well, like obviously habits and you know the environment overall plays into this. And um, even though, like again, like this this is why it's so complex, and this is why you see things like people talk about like metabolically healthy obesity. It's like, yeah, like you could literally have uh, I don't know we'll call it a fat threshold of twenty two percent body fat, and after that, you you really start to see you know, things fall off or the wheels fall off the wagon. However, because you also engage in, you know, exercise and you also eat a relatively well balanced diet in terms of like, you know, enough fiber, enough protein, et cetera. Like you've all good habits, you sleep enough, et cetera. Like you can effectively allow yourself to have more body fat without seeing the deleterious effects. And this is why it's so hard because it's not like I can just give you a recommendation. It's not like me or Gary or anyone can give you a recommendation and say like, yeah, don't go over 25% body fat because, for every percentage increase after that, you're going to see a 20% increase or whatever uh, of diabetes risk. Like there's no hard and fast number. And some people, their genetics might, you know, save them. They might be like, okay, you're genetically not predisposed. Like you've all the favorable genetics for not getting diabetes. And so you can kind of get much higher body fat levels and have no issues. But then also, it could be your general habits. It could be your sleep. It could be, you know, whatever. It could be that you're in a, a nice social setting and like, you know, you're just, I don't know, some neurochemistry is going on that it's, you know, benefiting you in some random way that we haven't even explored. Like there's so much that goes into this. However, the overall concept is still holds true in terms of what Gary's saying there. It's like, this is basically just a disease of, well, in this context anyway, it's just a disease of excess energy consumption. And that can happen to anyone, you know, like that could literally, you could be 12% body fat and your fat threshold based on your genetics, based on whatever could be 13%. I don't know, you know, like there's no way for me to say exactly. Now, do I think that is likely? No, it's more likely to be the case when you start getting into those, uh we'll say the BMI ranges that are typically associated with, you know, negative uh, effects. And again, there's a, a race, a race component to that, even though like that's, race like, like there's, that's not a great categorization and um, however like that still does play in or ethnicity if you want to use that slightly better categorization but like it, you still have to factor all of these things in um, and obviously like sex as well and again that's a somewhat of a proxy for like where you're storing this body fat but again like you could be a female who stores all your body fat around your stomach and you know you're not getting these benefits of being a female per se in terms of like the fatty acid or the fatty storage around your glutes your hamstrings your your thighs etc so like it's still very individualized and you have to take that into account 100
0: percent. and with that said that then brings us uh to an important part of the discussion which is um how we know that weight actually matters and, and why you should care i think um, because like we mentioned the twin cycles hypothesis, for example, there, and if we think about that and we, and we, we accept this kind of personal fat threshold level, then what we should see is that if you lose weight, it just gets better. And it's, that's kind of the case, but not so simple. Okay. So what tends to happen or what has been demonstrated, and this is really in the last decade or so, that this area of research has really moved forward. Previously, it was kind of thought that type two diabetes was a disease that was effectively irreversible, okay? So once you develop the disease, once the beta cell function started to decline, it was irretrievable. However, what has been demonstrated is that weight loss interventions, particularly very low calorie diets with very significant amounts of weight loss, tend to actually lead to the reversal or remission, depending on who you ask, um, of type 2 diabetes. And this occurs effectively proportional to the amount of weight lost, but also proportional to the amount of uh, beta cell function that was present uh, at baseline anyway. So that's, that's relevant because if someone has had type 2 diabetes for... 30 years, let's say. And up until now, um, they've had to take loads of medication for it to be controlled. Uh, it's very clear that um it was poorly controlled even at that then the chances of that being uh, reversed are less so than someone who's just being diagnosed, let's say in the last couple of years, they just had a blood glucose reading that was above that threshold and their HbA1c was elevated. So they got the diagnosis. Um, There's obviously a spectrum there. So ultimately there's a time component and there's a weight component to this uh, where the longer you've had the disease, the lower probability um, of reversal and the heavier heavier you are and the less weight you lose, again, that's that's reducing the risk of this being reversed. But overall, this kind of supports the hypothesis, if you will, the twin cycles hypothesis that when we see people um, losing sufficient amounts of weight, they do actually uh, recover uh, their beta cell function because effectively what's happening is they're losing body fat and specifically they're losing body fat around those areas that we discussed as being very important such as the pancreas and the liver and that is what's so interesting about the body of research that's there is that the the increase in blood glucose control or the increase in the insulin insulin response is effectively proportional to the amount of that pancreatic fat and liver fat that is lost so that's the really interesting thing here and that's why it's worth discussing because there is actually options for people through um, significant amounts of weight loss. The thing is, this does need to be, or probably should be medically supported or at least be part of like a multidisciplinary team. That's how these studies are run. And that's why it's difficult for us to just translate that over to the real world. Because if you're gonna, you know, undertake a, a rapid weight loss intervention on a very low calorie diet, you know, having support in place is very, very important. And that tends to improve outcomes. So. Overall, I think this this body of research has been very promising because obviously if you've been living with the disease and you thought, oh, well, that's it, I can't do anything about it, then I think that there's that extra bit of motivation. And I think that's also something worth keeping in mind here is that like, if you look at the weight loss research generally, it can be a bit disheartening because it's just like most interventions don't tend to be that impressive you know and even like when people try diets on their own they're very often not that successful realistically however if you think about like the actual motivation for engaging in the diet if you think that you're actually going to be able to reduce the amount of medication you take, um, no longer have this diagnosis of type two diabetes and no longer have symptoms and or complications associated with that disease because it does, it can get quite serious. You might need amputation down the line. Like that's a big motivating factor for people. So I think that it is really promising to know that there is that option available. Um, And the NHS in the UK, have um, allocated quite a bit of funding towards uh, getting more people uh, on low-calorie diets that are that are again supported by healthcare. Um, as a result of the evidence that has come out in recent years, so we'll see where that goes. Uh, but but ultimately, just know that the, the the option for that reversal or remission is there but that there are those nuances of how much weight is lost and the amount
1: of time the person has actually had the disease. Yeah. And this is one of the questions that I always have with relation to that. Like, is there something special about these like 800 calorie diets? You know, like the, the question I have, and I don't actually think we have an answer and like, I can hypothesize some things, but like, could you do a smaller deficit? Like let's say your, your calorie defi- your calorie maintenance is 2000 calories, right? And you go, Oh, I have to go on this 800 calorie diet to get these supposed benefits from the low calorie diet in terms of reversing type two diabetes. However, could you just go on a 1500 calorie diet for longer and still see the benefits? But then you start running into the the issue of like, okay, well, this could lead to a situation where because it's for longer, you have then more time spent in a diabetic state, which Mm -hmm. could then damage the cells further, and then you lose the function overall so effectively you're like okay let's bring in a diet intervention that is extreme no doubt but it's for a shorter amount of time but that allows us to recover that function probably a little bit quicker like it's probably you're also getting some like again I'll hypothesize getting some preferential fat loss from these tissues versus like you know a more even splattering of like fat loss when your body's only in a, a slight deficit um and obviously like you said like these people are being supported. Like most people who are trying to diet, they're not. First of all, they try to diet themselves on very poor diet strategies. And also they don't have other people to, you know, be in the same situation as them, talk through things, et cetera. Um, so that is a question that I have. I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
0: Yeah. Like I would, I would expect uh, that to be the case. Like there's not, there's not enough research that I'd be confident saying there's nothing to um just the fact that it's a very low calorie diet. Uh, but, but I do think from the evidence that's there, it seems like the primary determinant is actually the weight loss itself um, because of that relationship between weight loss and specifically uh, weight loss in the liver and pancreas. And the recovery of the insulin response from beta cells, so I would still expect that with less aggressive deficits that it would be it would be possible for for people to achieve that, but um, it will be interesting to see how that unfolds because there are other nuances as well, like when we talk about type 2 diabetes like the the only goal isn 't reversal like that 's not the only goal because you can also control your blood glucose better through dietary change otherwise. So that's an important thing, I think is that even if you're not at the point where you feel prepared to really, you know, take the plunge and lose loads of weight, you can still improve your overall diet. And while, while we sometimes uh, will criticize people for being dogmatic about like low carb diets, this is actually a situation where having a lower carbohydrate approach is likely to be beneficial for at least controlling blood glucose. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's better for the actual remission or reversal, uh, because that seems to be determined primarily by the weight loss outcomes. However, you can control your blood glucose better uh, by being on a low carbohydrate diet. There does seem to be some evidence um, to support that. Because obviously, if you're consuming less overall glucose, um, coming in through the diet, then there is, there is then um, less of less of a load to be dealt with. And, and while it's not as simple as glucose in glucose out, uh, it can at least help uh, with symptoms. And or symptoms in the sense of the blood glucose response but what we should also say there is that like some people do have an oversimplified understanding of diabetes and think that it is just like glucose in glucose out and therefore don't eat carbs and you'll never get diabetes <laughs> you can absolutely develop uh, type 2 diabetes as a result of just overfeeding even if it was on a lower carbohydrate diet so it's not it's not as simple as just carbs being the the problem but I do think there's there's a, something to be said there for people who are struggling to control their blood glucose, that being on a low, lower carbohydrate approach and especially a, a higher protein approach and a higher fiber approach and an overall healthful diet and that it can be helpful. That doesn't mean you need to do that because other things can be helpful too. For example, just improving your overall carbohydrate quality uh, such as having more whole grains. For example, there's evidence to show that, um, independent of the fact that they're slower digesting, so to speak, there's actually um, components within the food matrix that can improve the insulin response, um, which is something that, that can be helpful too. So overall, the, the, the amount of fiber in your diet is important. Fruits and vegetables, obviously, and nutrient density is important. Higher protein is useful. Um, and yeah, we'll overall- go,
1: we'll, go through, we'll go through a few insulin resistance- Yeah. Enhance, or insulin sensitivity enhancing things here now. But before we do that, one of those things that you just touched on there in terms of like people do have this very simplified view of diabetes in terms of it's like carbs in carbs out. Like this is, you know, this is this whole situation. Like ketogenic diets are, insulin resistant promoting diets you know so like there's no carbs no carbs in those diets you know and you can end up in a situation where you are more insulin resistant after the fact because of that you know because again like you're not using glucose like it makes sense right but also like this is an issue where you get overly fixated on the measurement that you're taking without actually thinking of it in terms of context because just because you're measuring your blood glucose and that's an easy thing for you to measure well relatively easily you still have to prick your finger etc like your fatty acids in your bloodstream are high in diabetes. You know, like there's nothing is getting into the cell. I'm saying nothing in inverted commas, you know, like everything is high. Nutrients are higher in your, your blood, you know? So just because you shifted things around and we're like, Oh, I stopped eating carbohydrates. Like your fatty acids are still high in your blood. Like they're not getting stored either, you know, Um, or, you know, they are getting stored eventually. Um, But like everything is high. So just because you changed around everything, but didn't change around your energy intake, like that's not going to necessarily necessarily change the issue. It could actually make the issue worse. You know, like if you change from a relatively high carbohydrate diet to a low carb diet, but you also do stuff like I don't know, bring in a load of saturated fat because you're like, oh, I'm going to go on a like a low carb diet approach, and I'm going to have like a lot of butter on my meals and you know whatever. Like that could make things worse. It might not. You might not get diabetes now, but because you have again these fatty streaks in your liver, you're now going to predispose yourself for even an increased again risk of heart disease. You know, so it's not a very like, oh, I manage my blood glucose and everything's okay because now you've just dramatically increased your like blood cholesterol level, your you know fatty acids in the bloodstream, etc. Like it's like there's calories still matter, like energy intake still matters. And well, yes, the composition of that diet definitely matters and both of us would be big advocates of that like you still have to think bigger picture you know but ultimately like as gary said earlier on like there is a kind of spectrum with this stuff and the, the time component does make a difference um, and i always ask myself the que- i say i always ask myself as if i ask myself every single day but whenever i'm looking at this stuff i ask the question of like can you reverse type 2 diabetes and it becomes an issue of like okay where are we actually in the 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 pathogenesis of that disease in terms of, are we just in a situation where it's like, oh, you kind of have pre-diabetes. You know, it's not really diabetes just yet. Like you're not at the threshold, but you know, you, your blood glucose has, your fasting blood glucose in the morning has been trending upwards, you know, um Consistently. Or again, like random spot checks are like they're always consistently higher than you would like them to be. Um, or are we in a situation where you have type two diabetes, but you're insulin dependent, like you actually need to inject yourself with exogenous insulin. Like there's, there's a whole spectrum in between that, that situation. And obviously, again, your ability to reverse this is going to depend, depend on where you are in that spectrum, right? But let's actually just take this because the end side of that spectrum in terms of like you need insulin you'd actually need like exogenous insulin. Like that's not the population realistically that we're dealing with because, you know, we're personal trainers. Like that's, that's who we are. We're not like, here's your insulin, you know, while well, some personal trainers do do that, that's, that's not us. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like we would be more dealing with people that are, you know, we'll say they're pre-diabetic or they've just got a new diagnosis of diabetes. They're kind of like in that kind of time frame where it's like, I'm overweight or obese, but I haven't had this disease for 20 years you know, or it hasn't been extremely poorly managed for five years while I was ignoring my health or whatever, you know, like we're in a situation where we're earlier on. So in this case, and again, this is what I want you to take away from this. If you are like a personal trainer or someone that is, you know, just interested in your own health, keeping this, you know, in a good place. And, or again, maybe you have a friend family member who just, you know, newly got a diagnosis of like, you're, you're overweight and obese and you're kind of trending towards diabetes. You're there just at the cutoff or just at the, the entry level cut off for that, whatever. Right. There is a lot of stuff that you can actually do for improving your insulin sensitivity. Um, And a lot of this, like we can talk talk about it from the perspective of like, what do overweight and obese people generally do? You know, and I say generally as if like there's one particular diet, but there kind of is, and that's the like, you know, sad diet, the standard American diet um, or standard Western diet as it's often being called nowadays. And like, oftentimes with that, it's a, it's a diet. And I say diet, like it includes lifestyle as well, but like it's, you know, low exercise and like non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, like there's low steps per day. So that's something that you can do yourself. Like if you want to improve your insulin sensitivity, you can exercise, you can get some steps in per day. Like that's, that's going to dramatically increase your insulin sensitivity because you're getting, you know, You actually don't need to go into the mechanisms, but you're getting more glucose into the cell as a result of that, right? But then also in this standard Western diet, you have like low fiber intake and high processed food intake, right? Um, And both of those things can be reversed. And then you can see benefits to your insulin secretion and insulin sensitivity overall, you know? So if you are in a position where you're like, okay, I need to make changes. One of the really easy changes you can make is just eat more fiber, right? And generally that's going to mean eat more fruit and veg, right? And that's going to come along with a lot of other beneficial things which I'll come to in the next point. Um, but also on top of that, like you can eat less processed food, right? Like that's, that's a, going to be a benefit because again, that's going to benefit your insulin secretion or how much you secrete in a given like unit of time, Um if you're eating less processed foods and obviously again like usually they come along with salt and whatever else which again potentially reduces your risk of high blood pressure if you cut them out you know and but also with that you know if you're eating more fruit and veg you're usually getting the opposite of what happens on a standard western diet which is most people on a standard western diet have low phytonutrient and polyphenol intake right whereas if you eat more fruit and veg all of a sudden you're getting a higher intake of those. And again, they have p- positive like blood glucose, uh, modulating benefits or insulin sensitivity, modulating benefits, especially stuff like, you know, cinnamon and, you know, different things like that. They all have an effect, even though you didn't like, you could eat, eat some cinnamon, for example, and have a different, um, insulin response or glycemic response to the food you eat. Because again, it has different properties you know and again there's other nutrients as well in this and like we're not going to go into all the supplements and different nutrients that you could get into because ultimately I think like if you just eat more fruit and veg like you kind of cover yourself a a lot right and but then also in terms of like the standard western diet and this is a little bit changed nowadays but like they used to be used to have like a higher intake of like trans fatty acids right which you know they're not beneficial and overall and again most of the times they've been cut out of the diet So it's not a huge concern, but like if you are eating a lot of like, you know, highly processed like cookies and different things like that, like potentially still a concern for you, right? But on top of that, like the standard Western diet is usually one that has high saturated fat intake, right? And again, that's not beneficial from, first of all, an insulin sensitivity perspective, and that's somewhat speculative, but even still, even if it's speculative, like it's not beneficial from other perspectives either in terms of like, we know like we're looking at diabetes here from the perspective of like this is potentially an issue for heart disease so we know that we're in a situation where we have these like potentially have these fatty liver streaks or fat accumulating in the liver which is going to increase your vldl and ldl and all these other things which again if we're going to start increasing them with more saturated fat like this is just not a good idea you know so again we can reverse that we can have a lower saturated fat intake now again it doesn't need to be zero it doesn't need to be a situation where you're like oh i fear ever using butter or anything like that but it still does make sense to lower it down to whatever 10 15 or lower of your overall calorie load right then on top of that like usually the standard western diet has like low polyunsaturated fat intake as well which again somewhat speculative, somewhat not speculative in terms of its role, in terms of insulin sensitivity. So that is something that you can change and something that a lot of people would benefit from just from the perspective that most people don't actually eat their essential fatty acid requirements per week. You know, like unless you're eating like, let's say fatty fish twice per week, like you're probably not meeting them. And the unfortunate thing about that is like, you don't notice how negative that is unless you actually start eating that or getting it you know in terms of like maybe you get your fish oil tablets or you know krill oil or you know whatever um other you know supplement form of it but ideally you would just eat fish you know that's, that's how humans really evolved or you could eat brains you usually have a high dha content and um, i would worry about prions disease but that's just me and um, mm-hmm. and also brains aren't don't look that appetizing you know especially not gary's brain it's real smooth it's like a bowling ball um but anyway, um, you know, so like that kind of stuff, like you can look into your fatty acid composition of your overall diet. And again, like you can reach out to people, get help with, the, with this and like really dive deep with this if you need to. And um, But also there's some other easy things that you can do in terms of like getting good sleep, like in obesity, overweight, you know, Generally we see sleep get disturbed. And we've talked about this before. And one of the major ways this gets disturbed is sleep apnea, you know. Um so if you have sleep apnea, like if you are overweight or obese, like just get a CPAP machine, right? Or get help at least. Like I can't obviously prescribe you a CPAP machine, but go to a doctor, get help about this. Tell them that you're, you know, don't don't leave the office with them saying like, oh, you need to lose weight and this will solve your issue. Like yeah, you know, that'll solve your issue. Potentially, I say, you know, that, like, you know, that this is potentially an, a, a solution to your issue. However, you're struggling with your blood glucose regulation, you're struggling with your, you know, diet adherence, you're struggling with, you know, sex hormones, you're struggling with all this stuff, because your sleep is so fucking shit, because you have sleep apnea, and you have like, fucking 50 events a minute, you know, you can barely breathe while you're sleeping. Um, and all of a sudden, if you get your you know, sleep on point, all these other things start falling in line a lot easier. And you're like, Oh, I can actually stick to my diet. My adherence goes way up. Oh, I can actually, you know, I feel energetic because, you know, now I'm actually producing sex hormones rather than castrating myself every time I try to go to sleep, you know? And, and you're also start getting like these, you know, positive feed forward loops. You just get more insulin sensitive. If I could speak more insulin sensitive because you're actually sleeping now, you know, it's like, it's a positive feed forward loop. So don't think like, like, don't, like, I think it's one of the, a huge disservice when people are going for sleep apnea events or whatever and someone goes oh you need to lose weight when it's extremely hard to lose weight when your sleep is fucking shit you know so it's like here can I get an intervention to help me then lose weight so I don't need to use a CPAP machine for the rest of my life great you know and but there's some things that you can do and like realistically that it doesn't change too much depending on the population in terms of like do some like steps per day, do some like resistance training. That's probably the the most beneficial, Well, you could argue like, you know, really eccentric load. Eccentric load is the negative, but like doing stuff like, you know, jumping and stuff like that. There's potential other benefits, but resistance training is probably the most effective for, you know, insulin sensitizing, insulin sensitizing effects. However, maybe you want to do some aerobic work. Maybe you want to do some like anaerobic sprints, whatever. I don't care. As long as you're exercising, like that's great. Go to a dance class, go to a yoga class. I don't care. Get yourself moving, right? Get your sleep sorted. Like any population, those two things, that's going to be beneficial for both of them, you know? Um, And also like I should say on this, like and Gary did touch on a few things there in terms of like habit-based change where you know, like i didn't actually say weight loss in any of those things as the main focus well yeah that's going to be really beneficial especially from this like twin cycle hypothesis and um, ultimately like if you're engaging in good healthful habits you know that's even regardless of if your weight actually changes like that's still beneficial and you're still likely to see benefits from that you know so don't get hung up on the fact that you're like oh i need to lose weight to see the benefits That's not actually the case. Like you can get a huge amount of these benefits by, you know, doing some resistance training, doing some exercise, doing some like, you know, non-exercise activity and getting better sleep, you know, stressing less, different things like that. And like none of them has to end up with weight change overall. However, that probably is going to happen if you engage in those things and it probably is going to be a further beneficial thing. That's it. Just
0: cured diabetes, did we? Yeah, we just cured it. We fix it. It's done. That's it.
1: <laughs> well, I have nothing else to say. That's that's my podcast done.
0: Fantastic. If you're interested in working with us. On the, in the process of improving your training and nutrition of course we do have coaching spaces available feel free to reach out we do have information below in the description box too but you can contact any of us you can contact me you can contact patty you can contact Brian on instagram um, or you can just drop us an email at info@triagemethod.com. method.com if you do want to follow us on social media Gary that's me at skinny guys' Patty at the real Patty Farrell or Brian at Brian O'Hangissa. Um, We all put out content uh, that's valuable on there, so do check it out. You can also subscribe to our Triage Method newsletter. Would recommend we have a free Facebook group too, the Triage Method community. And we do put out some stuff on our own social media as well. So at Triage Method, you can follow us, follow our Facebook page, follow our Instagram, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Lots of exercise tutorials and everything you can be working through as well as watching the podcast in video format, if you'd like to see our beautiful faces. And if you do uh, listen to your podcasts on a platform that allows you to leave a review, that'd be fantastic. If not, at least share it on your Instagram story or whatever social media you use um, and get other people the good word of triage. Oh, and the coach's corner, if you're a coach uh, education, get involved. 100%
1: and especially just on that point with you know sharing it on your social media when we have a huge growing following in america and we have a huge growing following in australia so if you're in either of those places and you would like to help us man share it with your friends family whoever on your social media really does help the the visibility of the podcast and we don't have as big a following in canada i thought that would have been you know a bigger one because i was thinking i was like you know maybe it's just the irish going abroad because obviously we're irish and and I was like, oh, maybe it's just those, you know, altering our numbers. Like, you know, I don't know, 20 people that listen to our podcast go over to America and they continue to listen to our podcast. However, I don't think it is because there's definitely a lot more. I say that that's probably not true in terms of magnitude, but there's definitely a lot of Irish people going over to Canada. Not right now, obviously, because, you know, COVID and all that. But I would have thought that would have been like, you know, a big place. But we don't actually have that big of a like it is like our fifth or sixth largest whatever but i thought those numbers would have been much higher now Gary, the the canadians are letting us down but yes sharing the podcast or leaving a review or doing any of those things it actually does really help the podcast um, and it helps you know get more eyeballs or ears whatever um listening or looking at the podcast and that is really beneficial other than that i have Nothing else to say. I hope everyone has a fantastic week. And um, if you're listening to this in the future, I hope neither myself nor Gary, um, you know, died of COVID or anything. Or maybe I don't know. Fuck, it's 2021 now. A meteor could hit the Earth. What do what, what you think? What What's the pandemic this year? Or what's the the catastrophic event this year? Um, Zombie apocalypse.
0: Yeah, I think that could be nice. Or even I think, I think the the worst because of the effect on morale would actually be uh, another virus, like another novel virus. I think that would be worse because there'd be no excitement. I'd actually take a meteor, to be honest. Like, I wouldn't mind. Like, it could take out some, you know, obscure country that I've never heard of, you know, just, it's fine. Or even, like, take out Dublin. I'd be okay with that. Excuse me? Like, I'd bring you down to Cork for the weekend and then let it hit Dublin, and that'd be fine. Ireland would fall apart without Dublin. If we just let the Brits take over, it'll be fine.
1: <laughs> absolutely hideous. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I don't know. Look, 2021, hopefully it's the year that we all get absolutely jacked out of our minds, get yep. shredded, because, increase our IQ by 100 points, just, you know, have a phenomenal time. The sun has come out. Not right now because it's, you know, half seven in the evening. Um, but the sun has, sun has come out because it's spring. And that definitely has increased the mood of everyone. Like all my check-ins today when I was talking to my clients, they were like, oh, yeah, it's so much more nice. And, you know, it's like, you know, I can go out for my steps and it's nice seeing like you know, the sun in the morning and the evening. So I just realistically hope that it's a really sunny summer this year. And that would be enough for me. Like, well, I say that. We also need to have freedom on top of that. Like it can't be really sunny and I'm still stuck in my room. Like that would not be beneficial. That would probably be a negative in my eyes. Um, But if we're allowed even, you know, go out and walk and interact, you know, talk to our friends on the green without the the guards coming around and saying, you know, fuck off. um, That would be really beneficial for my overall mood anyway. And I think everyone else's. You'd probably still be stuck in, you know, some hospital somewhere though. Yeah. I'll just be in a hospital. So it doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, look, that's all I have for today. It's too easy.